As the old saying goes, truth is often stranger than fiction. While writers work tirelessly to provide the crazy plot twists we've come to crave from our favorite crime books, TV, and movies, even the best imaginations occasionally fall short of reality. Today, we wanted to take a look at a few examples of such crimes, focusing on cases with strange or unexpected twists that kept everyone guessing. Though there are no doubt an endless number of strange stories that could probably make this list, we've opted for just a small selection of the ones that stood out to us. If there's a story you think we should look into, make sure to let us know about it in the comments section below, and we'll be sure to consider it for a future video. Before we get to our list, make sure to subscribe to Crime Zone for more true crime content like this, making sure to hit the notification bell to stay up to date with our latest videos. With that out of the way, here is our list of five true crime stories with insane twists. When Abraham Shakespeare won $30 million in the Florida lottery, he should have been set for life. In 2006, the 40-year-old took a lump sum payment of $17 million, moved into a gated neighborhood, and no longer had to spend his time scraping by on unreliable day labor jobs. But unfortunately, winning the lottery was just the start of Shakespeare's problems. First, he was sued by a co-worker who falsely claimed that he had stolen the winning ticket out of his wallet. Though the court sided with Abraham, it would be far from the last time someone came looking for his money. Close friends and family members reported that he had become frustrated with constant requests for money by those around him, many of whom were people he barely knew. One of these people was a woman named Dee Dee Moore. Moore allegedly first met Shakespeare for the purposes of writing a book about him. Sometime after this, the two appeared to open a business together, and Moore said she would manage his assets. When Shakespeare went missing in 2009, Moore was interviewed by police and told them that he had left by choice and had done so because he could no longer handle the non-stop requests for money by those around him. Police discovered she had made several suspicious purchases before Shakespeare's disappearance, including three new cars. The ownership of Shakespeare's home was also transferred to Moore's company, as well as debts from several loans that were to be paid to him. Though Shakespeare's family was suspicious, they had no proof of any wrongdoing. It was when the family began to receive text messages and handwritten letters from Abraham, however, that the case really began to take a turn. The family knew that these messages could not be from Abraham, as he was illiterate. It turned out that Moore had been using Shakespeare's cell phone to send these messages to his friends and family, and was meanwhile desperately seeking out someone to take the fall for his murder. In 2010, Moore believed she had finally succeeded, when she was introduced to a man named Mike Smith. She agreed to pay Smith $50,000 for confessing to the crime, also handing over the murder weapon and showing him the slab of concrete on one of her properties under which she had buried Shakespeare's body. What she didn't know was that Smith was an undercover officer. Moore was subsequently arrested, tried, and convicted for the first-degree murder of Abraham Shakespeare. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole in December of 2010. On the night of December 10, 2003, the Whitaker family of Sugarland, Texas, was celebrating. The affluent family of four's eldest son, Thomas, had just finished his final exams at Sam Houston State University and would be graduating in the coming months. After a congratulatory dinner in the nearby town of Stafford, the family returned home for the evening. While Thomas went to retrieve his cell phone from his truck, his parents Patricia and Kent and his brother Kevin proceeded to enter the house when the unthinkable happened. The three were ambushed by a gunman, with Kevin and Patricia each shot once through the chest and Kent shot in the shoulder while attempting to escape. Hearing the gunshots, Thomas rushed into the house, struggling with the gunman and taking a bullet in the arm before the shooter escaped. 
While Kent and Thomas survived, Patricia and Kevin Whitaker both died as a result of their injuries. At first, the case appeared to be a straightforward one, a tragic case of burglary gone wrong, with only the father and son surviving. However, things quickly began to unravel. For one thing, the only item stolen in the alleged burglary appeared to be Thomas's cell phone. Further tips to police revealed that Thomas had tried to recruit several people to kill his family, and had done so on at least one other occasion two years earlier. Finally, it turned out that not only would Thomas not be graduating from university that year, he had dropped out of school altogether some time before without informing his family. On the night of the shooting, Thomas had recruited acquaintances Chris Brashear and Stephen Champagne to assist with the murders. Champagne staked out the family dinner, informing Brashear when they would return home. Brashear shot the family members before running out the back door and escaping in a getaway car driven by Champagne. When the two confessed, they also led investigators to the cell phone Thomas Whitaker had claimed was stolen. After being tipped off about his impending arrest, Thomas managed to escape to Mexico, where he lived for over a year under the alias Rudy Rios, before finally being caught and sent back to the U.S. to stand trial. Whitaker's motive appeared to be both financial and a product of mental illness. His family was quite wealthy, and he had a trust fund worth tens of thousands of dollars. Whitaker had also been previously diagnosed as experiencing symptoms of a paranoid disorder. He received the death penalty, though his sentence was later commuted to life, in part because his father insisted he would be victimized all over again if his final remaining family member was put to death. In late 1971, neighbors in the small town of Westfield, New Jersey, began growing concerned about the List family. Though the family of six, consisting of husband and wife John and Helen, their three children, and John's mother Alma, were devoutly religious and typically reclusive, the family had not been seen in some time. Initially thought to be on a trip to North Carolina, neighbors called the police when the lights in the List's Victorian mansion began burning out one by one, having been left on all day and night with no signs of activity for several weeks. When investigators entered the home, they made a shocking discovery. Inside, they found the bodies of Helen List, her three children, and John's mother Alma. All five had been shot to death. John List, however, was nowhere to be found. Upon closer inspection of the house, police discovered all of the crime scenes had been cleaned up and John's pictures had been meticulously cut out of every family photograph in the house. In the study, they found a five-page letter that John had written to the family pastor, confessing to the crimes. He wrote that he worried the family was straying from their religious faith, and that he had killed them in order to ensure their souls a place in heaven, hoping to one day join them there. However, later investigation would reveal that John was under significant financial stress. He had lost his job and had been out of work for months, though none of this had been known by his family. A nationwide manhunt was launched, but without any reliable photos of John, the leads in the case soon dried up. In fact, he had traveled to Denver, Colorado, assuming a new identity as Robert Peter Clark, where he would remain undiscovered for 18 years. During this time, he even remarried, eventually settling in Virginia. However, in 1989, John List's luck would finally run out, when the murder case was featured on one of the early episodes of the television series America's Most Wanted. The segment used a clay bust of John that had been sculpted by a forensic artist, and was a close enough resemblance that one of his neighbors took notice. Less than two weeks after the broadcast, John was arrested at his accounting job in Richmond. At trial, a psychiatrist testifying on John's behalf argued that he suffered from an obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, and that he saw only two solutions to his financial struggles, 
either accept welfare, which would have violated his deeply held principles and exposed the family to ridicule, or send his family's souls to heaven. List was convicted on five counts of first-degree murder in 1990. In a final dark twist, it is rumored that the List's mansion featured a stained-glass skylight, said to be a signed Tiffany original. It would have been worth well over $100,000 at the time, and could have saved John from his financial troubles. The house burned down just nine months after the horrific crimes, taking the skylight with it. In June of 2015, police in Greene County, Missouri, were called to the home of Dee Dee Blanchard. Neighbors had become concerned after spotting a disturbing Facebook post on Dee Dee's account, alluding to crimes committed against her and her young daughter, Gypsy Rose. The concern was amplified due to the fact that Gypsy Rose suffered from a variety of debilitating illnesses and chronic conditions that had left her with brain damage and confined to a wheelchair. When police arrived at the scene, they found Dee Dee face down on her bed, lying in a pool of blood that appeared to be from stab wounds inflicted days earlier. Gypsy Rose was nowhere to be found, and police feared that she had been abducted. Neighbors were reportedly worried that the girl wouldn't survive very long without her various medications and oxygen tank. That's when the case took an even darker turn. Gypsy Rose was found by police just a day later in Wisconsin, where she had traveled with her boyfriend, Nicholas Gottajohn. It turns out that not only was Gypsy Rose an adult, she was not suffering from any of the physical or mental health issues that her mother Dee Dee had claimed. It is suspected that Dee Dee Blanchard suffered from Munchausen syndrome by proxy, a mental disorder that can cause a parent or caregiver to go to extreme lengths to fabricate, exaggerate, or induce illness in a person in order to gain attention and sympathy. Indeed, Gypsy Rose had suffered years of physical and mental abuse at the hands of Dee Dee, including having her head shaved, being forcibly confined to a wheelchair, and being subjected to countless unnecessary medications and surgeries. Dee Dee Blanchard had also used her daughter's supposed conditions to benefit from several charities, such as Habitat for Humanity, Ronald McDonald House, and the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Gypsy Rose had purportedly devised the plan to kill her mother, as she could no longer withstand the horrific abuse. Both she and her boyfriend were arrested and charged with the murder. The community was shocked and outraged, though there was an outpouring of support for Gypsy Rose as the victim of years of child abuse. Nonetheless, both Nicholas Gottajohn and Gypsy Rose Blanchard were convicted for Dee Dee's murder. Gypsy Rose received 10 years for her second-degree murder conviction and will be eligible for parole in 2024. In May of 1985, a young mother of three named Catherine Eastburn posted a classified ad in the local newspaper, saying that she was trying to get rid of her dog. Eastburn was the wife of an Air Force captain, and the family would soon be relocating from the Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina to England for her husband's work. A man named Timothy Hennis, a 27-year-old Army sergeant stationed at nearby Fort Bragg, responded to the ad and came to Eastburn's home to see the dog. Hennis claims he agreed to take the dog and left shortly afterwards. Over the next few days, no one heard from Catherine Eastburn. Her husband Gary was unable to reach her for their usual Saturday telephone conversation, a call he made every week while he was at an officer's school in Alabama. Neighbors also began to grow concerned when they noticed newspapers piling up at the house, despite Catherine's car remaining on the driveway. When they heard a baby crying inside, they decided to call the police. When they arrived at the Eastburn home, officers encountered a shocking scene. Catherine and two of her daughters had been violently murdered, and her 22-month-old had simply been left in her crib. 
it also appeared that Catherine had been raped before her murder. In the following days, at least two witnesses described seeing a vehicle similar to Hennessy's on the night of the murder, and gave a description matching his appearance. When Hennessy saw the police were looking for a person driving a white Chevette who had picked up a dog from the Eastburn residence, he drove to police headquarters. During the course of his questioning with police, he provided blood, saliva, and hair samples, as well as fingerprints and palm prints. He acknowledged visiting the residence on the night of the murders, but vehemently denied any involvement in the crime. Still, other incriminating evidence seemed to point to Hennessy's guilt. In particular, his alibi for the night of the murder was shaky, and an amount of money withdrawn from Catherine Eastburn's bank account in the days following the murder closely matched the amount Hennis was behind on for his rent that month. He had also taken his black members only jacket to the dry cleaners the day after the murders, a piece of clothing eyewitnesses said they saw him wearing on the night of the crimes. At trial, Hennis was convicted on three counts of first-degree murder and one count of rape, and was sentenced to death. Though that seemed like the end of the case to many, there was still much more to come. Several weeks after his sentencing, Hennis received a mysterious letter in prison. It was signed by a Mr. X, who purported to have killed the Eastburns and thanked Hennis for taking the fall for the crimes. For the next three years, Hennis and his legal team prepared to appeal his conviction. After winning a state Supreme Court case on the grounds that the many graphic photos shown at trial had prejudiced the jury against him, Hennis was awarded a new trial. During that second trial, the defense argued that the eyewitnesses presented at the first trial were unreliable, citing multiple discrepancies in the testimony of the prosecution's star witness, and pointing out his extensive criminal history. The defense also claimed that Catherine Eastburn had received threatening phone calls from an unknown man two months prior to her murder, and read the letter from Mr. X aloud in the courtroom. But the most damning evidence presented by the defense was a spot of blood and some pubic hairs found in the house that did not belong to either Hennis or any of the victims. After two days of deliberation, the jury found Hennis not guilty on all counts. After more than 800 days on death row, Timothy Hennis was a free man. Over the next few years, he served as a poster boy for wrongful conviction cases, and his story was covered extensively in the media. He re-enlisted in the army and went on with his life, eventually retiring in 2004. However, the murders of the Eastburns continued to go unsolved. In 2005, after being informed of new advances in DNA testing technology, detectives in the case sent sperm samples recovered from the murder scene off for testing. The results came back a year later, a match to Timothy Hennis. Because of double jeopardy rules, there was nothing that the state of North Carolina could do to charge him based on the new information. However, there are certain crucial exceptions to double jeopardy. One such exception is that a member of the armed forces can be retried by court-martial in a military court, even if they have been previously acquitted by a civilian one. Though it does not happen often, investigators convinced the military to recall Hennis to active duty, where he was arrested on three counts of murder. He was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to death. Timothy Hennis is thought to be the only person in the U.S. tried three times in his life for the same crime and currently sits in solitary confinement in Fort Leavenworth Military Prison. He still hopes to appeal his case. That brings us to the end of our list. Are there any crime stories that you think should have made the cut? Let us know in the comments section below. And if you enjoyed our video, don't forget to like and subscribe to Crime Zone for more true crime content like this, making sure to hit the notification bell to stay up to date with our latest videos. Thank you for watching.